Uh, yesterday, we I had a, a talk uh, with Mike, and it was it was about prophecy and how important that that is. But what God wants to reveal to us this morning, and, and what He revealed to me, He wants to make this very clear, very very clear in our understanding, and in in a most beautiful way. So here in in Second Peter one. 19, it says that we have also a more certain, and that's the word that it should be, more certain and thus immovable word of, of prophecy. Whereunto you, all of us in Christ, do well that we take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Of course, the dark place is this world system that we're in as Jesus was in John 17 and verse 14, and we are in verse 16, but we are not of. That we do well as to take heed unto a light that shines, and that light is shining in us. That's Christ, shining in us in the midst of this dark world system until the day dawns. And, and really, it is shining in us right now. Right now it is. But we're on our way to the day that actually dawns in the presence of all creation, in our own intimacy with Christ. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13, 12 brings out. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then it says face to face. For now we see in part, and we know in part. But then that, when we see him face to face, then that which was in part in our learning will be done away. And what's being done away there is any interference or interruption of that darkness, the world entering into our experience. This is beautiful. And so, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, and in our heart is that place where we treasure the most of that that we believe has the most value. And of course, that's Christ in each of us. Until the day star Arise in your hearts, knowing this first, we're to know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. No private interpretation. For the prophecy, the preaching and teaching of things that were being foretold and that would come to pass in fulfillment, came not in, in any time by the will of man, but holy men of God. You see, those are the ones that God could use when their experience was completely pure from the flesh, even in their experience. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, yes, prophecy, we need to know it. We need to know it. But we know it, not in the spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1.7, but of power and love, and a very well-disciplined mind. Again, 2 Timothy 1.7. Because we have the mind of Christ. We do have the full mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And what does that mean, to have the mind of Christ? What is it then that would go against this? And this is what I want us to see as God was giving me beautiful comfort and understanding this and understanding it in this sense. So in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, in verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now, who is the will of God? 
who performed it and finished it. That's Christ. He's in us. But Paul said, the Holy Spirit through Paul said that he was an apostle. He didn't say that himself. The Holy Spirit said, Paul, you're an apostle of, meaning everything about you is, is constituted of Christ, his person and the work that he's accomplished. And it's by the will of God because it's a finished will in John 4 and verse 34 and John 19 and verse 30. And Timothy, our brother, unto the church, that ecclesia, that local assembly of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, those that have been sanctified, set apart from the world, from everything about the flesh, the lie of the enemy, every single thing about it, and set into Christ positionally, we are to experience it. And this is what he wants us to experience as saints, which are, which are in all Achaia. What? Grace. Isn't that awesome? I want you to experience grace. And when you experience grace, you're going to experience love flowing through it. And when that's your experience, it's going to be peace in the midst of this world system as prophecies being worked out. And peace, what? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So on account of this, oh, how blessed we are because of God. Meaning when he's glorified. And when we experience it, it doesn't just bless us, but it blesses him. This is what it's saying here. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of what? Mercies. This brings out the beauty of Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. We have this great high priest who has been gone through everything that touches you and I in this evil world system. Evil this world says he's been touched by it all and he understands it. He understands it. And we can draw near to him. We can draw near to him and get come to the throne of grace to find mercy right in the nick of time. Anytime and at all times that we turn to him. When we turn to him, he turns away all confusion. When we turn to him, who is, who is the love of God manifested towards us, it repels fear of any kind, doubt. And in Romans 14, 22, happy is the man, that's in Christ, obviously, that even condemns not himself and the thing that he allows. And he that doubts is damned if he eat. Why? Because he eats not of faith and whatsoever is not of faith, completely depending upon God. Whatsoever is not of faith is what? It's sin. Sin. And what's sin based upon? We're going to see it this morning. It's based upon a lie. Against the comfort that is ours in Christ. He wants us to be comforted. Listen. To know prophecy. To understand it, yes. But in the light of the, of the dawning of the comfort of God in us through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're to know it. Because we, if we know it outside of that, we know it in fear. We know it in fear. And we need to test the spirits. The spirits, whether they be of God. There are many spirits that are gone out into the world that are the lying vessels of Satan that come against the one spirit that we have for our human spirit is God the Holy Spirit. Now this is what it says here. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Are we experiencing all comfort? Are we? Or is there doubt? Is there fear? Is there irritation? Is there suspicion? That's not the comfort that comes from God. That's another spirit. We need to try the spirits, whether they be of God or not. Because any other spirit that comes against us, against the comfort of who God is in us through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of a lie, and it's the same spirit right now working in the earth in the midst of prophecy with Christ in us. It's the spirit of Antichrist. The lie, the liar against the truth. The wicked one, it says in 1 John 5 and verse 18, the wicked one, the liar, touches us not positionally. He doesn't touch us, but he does the whole world. You see that. Very clearly in 1 John 2 and verse 19, he plays with the world like with fear. It's his play toy. And boy, he loves to do that to believers in their experience. You can't touch their position in Christ. But boy, does he go after an experience that's minus the comfort that comes from God's love. And he never withdraws his love from us. Never. Never, never, never. He never does. And with that love is always that source of comfort. Even in the midst of prophecy. Prophecy is important to understand. But we can never understand it properly without God's love and his comfort for us. So blessed is God when his son who glorified him is in us. He gets blessed. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we're blessed. Why? Because God was what first glorified and blessed himself. And he loves to pour into those that his son has won. Comfort. In the midst of trial, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, in the midst of trial, in 1 Peter 1, 7, in the midst of Job's trial, in 23 and verse 10 of Job, he'll come forth as gold. Come forth as gold. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our tribulation, all our tribulation, not just some of it, all of it, that you and I may have that supernatural ability that comes from the love of God that brings this comfort to us so that we can comfort them. You see, God doesn't comfort us to settle down in the world. He comforts us to make us comforters. And the only way he can do that is this, to comfort them which are in any trouble. You've had trouble lately? By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now here's verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, even in terms of our loving chastisement, in Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I got away from thinking with God. And when I do, fear comes in. Automatic fear comes right in when it's not love, you see. You know, you can't, fear can't touch my position in Christ. 
but borders that go after the experience. But no, in 1 John 4 and verse 17, we're to have boldness in the day of judgment. We are living right now in the day where the world system's on its way to being, it's being judged now and ultimately that will be finished in 1 John 2 and 17. But there's no fear. As he is, so are we in this present evil world. In this present world. We're to have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so are we. Is there any judgment that we're ever going to face now that Christ stood in our place to be judged? Never. And it's never even at the Bema seat in 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 11. People connect those verses saying there's terror at the Bema seat. No, Jesus Christ dealt with that. There's no fear or terror or, or punishment. There's a lot of teaching that goes into that. Thank God for the preciseness of his word that only God the Holy Spirit can take and make it to be sense in us when we rely on him in simple obedience and humility. And it has nothing to do with natural intellect because that's only based upon the liar. Now, here's what it says. For as the sufferings of Christ, in 2 Corinthians 1.5, abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we're afflicted, it's for your consolation. Did you know that? For every, for every believer in Christ and their deliverance, their continual deliverance, salvation, which is effectual. You see that? Which is effectual, which is wrought, which is worked out in the enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. See, this is how we're to understand Second Peter 1, 19 to 21. This is why we're to understand it. This is why our place isn't in the world. This is why the details of life don't become our occupation like the world does. We get so overwhelmed with them, we forget God. We forget God that Christ is in us. We forget that we have the Holy Spirit in us and that Christ is all power and we have the power of the Holy Spirit to make it effectual. You see, all power is ours in our position through Jesus Christ. But to make it experientially, we still need God and that's God the Holy Spirit who takes the things of Christ and continually shows them unto us when our will in James 4 and verse 7 is submitted to him. Now, here's what it says. And this is how it's brought out here. We see this and we're, we're to understand this. And this is understanding prophecy. Again, in Second Peter 1, 19 to 21, this is understanding prophecy. And this is how we're to understand it. Listen, this is Philippians 1 and verse 27. It says this. Now, that, okay, verse 26 says that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation, in other words, let what you speak be a revelation of your citizenship in heaven, because that's really what it's saying here. We are on the earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. So let your conversation be the equal of, way of who you, who's in you and who you're in, as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, 
that you stand fast, immovable. What is it? Stand fast, immovable. Listen, always abounding in the work of God working through you for others. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor, and that's part of suffering, righteously, by the way, is not in vain. It's not without purpose. And so here, again, it says this, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind. This is local assembly teaching this. Striving, laboring, striving, not in the flesh, laboring together for the faith, that dependence of the gospel that Christ is, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. See this? No fear. No, no fear. Oh, no. Which is to them an evident token of perdition where they're headed to hell and ultimately the lake of fire. But to you, a deliverance, a continual experiential deliverance based upon your position. Not going to leave you. It's not going to forsake you, Joshua 1.5. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should ever change his mind. Has he not said, given you a promise, has he not said, and will he not do it? In his timing in Genesis 18 and verse 14. Has he not spoken and will it not come to pass? Will it not? Will it? In Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, can anything stop the truth of God's word? Can anything ultimately in Isaiah 55 and 11 and Ezekiel 12 and verse 25? Absolutely not. You can't stop God and Christ is in us. God, the Son of God is in us. Here, but, but to you of a deliverance in that of God. Do you see all the source of comfort that, that the Holy Spirit is revealing to us this morning is not, is, is, has to do with God being glorified, us being blessed, and using us as a blessing to others. So it's saying. Everything we go through is that, is that first for, for God to be glorified through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, for us to be blessed as an individual, and then to be a joint in Ephesians 4 and verse 16 that supplies. How are we going to be a supplier for others when our mind is constantly on ourselves? What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Yes, you told me this, God, but I don't see it happening. How, how are you going to be? Whew. The Lord help all of us, huh? Amen. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to what? Suffer for his sake. Is there any godly comfort without suffering? Answer, no. It's a privilege. So when those trials come, don't think it's so foreign and strange in 1 Peter 4.12. Don't think it's strange. You think it's strange? Well, look at Christ and what he went through while he walked on the face of the earth. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. Listen to what it says. For his sake. For his glory. Christ in you. In Colossians 1.27, the hope, the guarantee of glory. The sufferings of this present time, not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us and all around us and on us in Romans 8.18. 8, 
having the same conflict which you saw in me. This conflict in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, spiritual warfare, which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What is this? And this is a beautiful thing. First of all, in 2 Corinthians 1, we want to see this. But first we want to see this morning what it is that the enemy constantly projects against this, the love of God. I don't know. I'm going through this trial, all this crazy stuff. Where is your love, God? Is Christ in you? Is he in me? Oh, that's his love. Fulfilled satisfied with who Christ is in you and who you are in him. But this is, what, this is what it is, and this is what the enemy does to come against the truth of what trials are for, for God's glory and our blessing, and our eternal fellowship with Christ. Is it worth it, is it, worth it to go through time, in time, through suffering? And this is what it says here, in 2 Corinthians, and I just want to read this, in 2 Corinthians 4, here, verse 15, it says, For all things are for your sakes. Really? Yes. All things are for your sake. Why? Because there's an abundance of grace for all of it. You have Christ in you. The fullness of grace and truth in John 1.14. He's in us in Ephesians the book of Ephesians, the epistle. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace, that means it's involved, God has got multitudes involved in your life, not just for you and him, but for others. That's the abundant life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, how? To kill and destroy. We're going to see what he uses to do that against our experience. But Christ said, I have come that you might have life individual, but then have it more abundantly. And boy, if he can stop it in us experientially, he doesn't want that abundance in others. Now, might through the thanksgiving of many redound, go right back to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. Men should always pray in Luke 18, 1, and not faint. Constantly depend upon him constantly, for every thought, every word, every step, every place of patience, learning patience, that there is a suffering in learning patience. Oh, yeah. For which cause we faint not? Which cause? His love. Can it fail in 1 Corinthians 13, 8? But, but, though, but though our outward man perish, oh, focus on that. Not the treasure in the vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but the vessel and how it affects you and everything affects your vessel and how everyone else affects your vessel. Let's talk about the vessel, what it's going through, what it feels. No, talk about the treasure and keep in prayer those other things. Most of those we really should keep in secret to God. And that's what I believe. Instead of making them the topic of conversation. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward is renewed day by day. Through what? Through the word, the comfort of the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
taking the things of Christ and showing them unto us. This again is Ephesians 4 and verse 23. But notice in Ephesians 4 verse 20, you have to put off the lying old man, the whole way of thinking, the lying false reasonings in 2 Corinthians 10.5, strongholds in 2 Corinthians 10.4, patterns of behavior based upon lies. have to put it aside. But though outward man perish, the inward is renewed day by day for our light affliction. Really? Oh, how we make a, a great big deal. And sometimes it is. But it's not too heavy for him to bear us through it. Because the light afflictions, the things that we go through in time, what are they to be compared with, with eternal glory with him? Again, that's Romans 8, 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. You know this lifespan in Psalm 90, verse 10? This lifespan is like a blink of an eye. You can't, it's even less than a blink of an eye compared to all eternity. So is it worth it? In other words, really, truthfully, is he worth it in us? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Listen, while we look not at the things that are seen, the things that cause us to be impatient. Oh, we got to be patient again. Yeah, no other way to learn. No other way. No other way. Oh, there's no other way. No. Well, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. What are those things? Read 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 16. The things that are of Christ that are against the things of the natural man that can function in the experience of the flesh of a believer that's in them, but that they're not of in Romans 8, 9. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but separated from that, the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's the eternal life that Christ is in us. In 1 John 5, 11 and John 17, 2 and 3. Now, this is what the enemy comes against us with. With all the grace, the love, unconditional, grace and truth, fulfillment of Christ in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that his love brings this tremendous comfort whenever we turn to him. Turn away from all that would distract unto Jesus in Hebrews 12 too, and you, you and I will be comforted. Instantly. It's a choice. Instantly. Do I continue to submit my mind and my thought process to fear, which is based upon lies? Is there any fear in God? Any fear in love? In 1 John 4.18. No, it's only torment. Colossus, torture. The enemy comes against us with a lie. You see, he's been robbed of all his power in Hebrews 2.9-14. He's been robbed of it all the way through to the 18th verse, by the way. In Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, all the way into the ninth chapter of Hebrews, into the 10th chapter of Hebrews, without any question about it. And all of that is for us. You can be sure of that. But this is what a lie is. I want to read to you what a lie is. Here it is. A lie is a false statement. Now remember, this is how the enemy, he's the father of all lies in John 8, verse 44. 
This is what a lie is. It's a false statement made with deliberate intent to deceive. It's an intentional untruth. Something intended or serving to convey a false impression. That's the emotions. That's my feelings. It's an imposture. It's an inaccurate or untrue statement. It's a falsehood. It's the charge, listen to this, or accusation. The enemy accuses us. He accuses God before man and man before God. Daniel 7, 25, he speaks great words against the Most High to wear out the saints. It's the charge or accusation. So in other words, if the enemy through his lie can't deceive me in Revelations 12, 9, like he deceives the whole world, like everything about you is this life and that's it. Everything about you has to do with your life on this earth and the details of life. Read again Matthew 6, 1 through 34. Details of life. Details. If he can't deceive us in Revelation 12, 9, then he begins to accuse us in Revelation 12, 10. And who does he accuse? If he can't stop you from functioning and experiencing Christ, then when you do, what's he going to do? He's going to come in and accuse you. Is that part of suffering? Righteously, is that part? Yes. What did they accuse God and humanity? Christ. Oh, Lord. It's the charge or accusation of telling a lie. It's to speak falsely or utter untruth knowingly as with intent to deceive, to express what is false, to convey a false impression. The enemy is constantly projecting lying projections against our absolute dependence upon Christ. You see, it's to express what is false. It's it's to convey a false impression. It's to bring about or affect by lying. And often this is used reflexively. In other words, that's what I I begin to reflect on, on the lie and not... Instead, I buy the lie and not the truth in Proverbs 23 and verse 23. I spend my experiencing, my experience believing the lie, the doubt, the fear, the irritation, the suspicion. See, now here it is. To utter falsehood with an immoral design. And it has to do, listen, to the believer, it's a false image of who they are in Christ. It's a lie against who we are in Christ. To doubt him, he's in us, and to doubt him is a lie against the proper image. Not only the image of who Christ is in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, but our proper image. For the world, he keeps them deceived. What? A lying false image of who God really is. And then against us, through accusations. To bring us back into deception again. To live on the earth. And to make it as comfortable as we can. Instead of being a comforter. It's a, it is this. A criminal falsehood. 
a falsehood uttered for the purpose of deception. It's an intentional violation of truth. Violation of who Christ is in us. Filled with all grace and truth, Him in us. And we filled up in Him. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. It is fiction or a false statement or a false lying representation of a lying image. It is a fiction in a ludicrous sense. It's false teaching. In 1 John 2, 1, it's a lie. It's, it's lying. It's an idolatrous picture of God. Oh, there were so many who God had to correct. The unsaved. And even when we function in the flesh, you thought that I was altogether such a one as like you. But I will come and set things in order. Oh, the order that he has to set the unsaved at the great white throne. But for us, thank God, he sets it in order. To, to take away the confusion in 1 Corinthians 14.33. That's mixing lying thoughts with the grace and truth that Christ is in me. Instead of his order. Because God does all things decently and in order in 1 Corinthians 14.40. And God, God's only order is Christ and Christ is in us. And when I function outside of that order, I function experientially in a lie. It's a false God. Did we hear that? It is a false God we're allowing in the experience. And that is brought out again in Romans 1 and verse 25. And when you have false gods, now you have false behavior and you look at the behavior of some. Unfortunately, even Christians, what they enter into. And what any of us can enter into. It is that which deceives and ultimately disappoints confidence in God. The enemy brings a lion so that we cast away in Hebrews 10, 35 to 39. Our confidence in God, which has a very great recompense of reward. What is the reward? If you suffer with me, even now, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, you will reign with me. But if you deny me, you deny me reigning in your experience. Well, here... That which deceives and disappoints confidence. A lie. Now, a, a lie is literally, it's a verb. And what is the verb? It speaks of action. <laughs> it's the action of the enemy through his lies, deceits, and accusations to draw us away from loving comfort and intimacy and fellowship with Christ. And in this sense, it, it, the verb here is intransitive. And at some other point, we'll, other time, we'll get into transitive verbs and intransitive verbs. But the truth is, this is what it is. It's to utter falsehood with an intention to deceive with an immoral design or an immoral image. A lie. What, God's going to forsake you? That's his image? That's a lie. It's to exhibit a false representation. It's to say or do that which deceives another. When he has a right to know the truth. Did we hear that? It's to exhibit a false representation or to say or do that which deceives another, which he has a right to know the truth, 
or when morality requires a just representation. We don't trust him. What can we not trust him for? Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust. Hebrews 11, 1. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. A lie. The verb here is intransitive and it's a preterite tense. Now, what does that mean? This is what it means, okay? It's the Greek word that usually signifies to speak which is to utter or throw out sounds or lies, impressions. This brings in 1 Corinthians 14, 6-11. In this world system, there are many voices, but we know in 1 Corinthians 14, 11, and 12, none of them are without significance. Many voices, many lies against the one truth, the voice of the shepherd in John 10, 3, 14, and 27. Many against the one truth. And here it is. To throw it out. He throws out these projections against absolute dependence upon God. Absolute, constant, continual dependence upon God. Give up. Quit. We see it clearly. These sounds. Do you remember in Numbers, the 10th chapter? Verses 1 through 10. Everything, the picture there is, is they, were, they were rescued out of Egypt, the, the over 2.4 million Jews. And then now he, he led them out and put them in the wilderness. And then they were in the wilderness. Now the wilderness is, is this. It's failure but constant progression because of grace and truth and unconditional love. That's Numbers the 10th. That's the book of Numbers. And everything that they did in the camp, notice they had tents. They never settled down in the world system. They never settled down in just details of life and leave God out and then just use Him to accomplish the details when He desires intimate fellowship with us. They went by the sound of the trumpet. It was made of two pieces. Two True in the Bible can mean separation from evil or separation from good. They heard a silver trumpet. It's redemption. God is constantly speaking the redemptive word, leading us through so that we don't settle down and quit based upon a lie and make the details of life to be our life like the world does. Well, you got to hurry up here. Well, and we see that. So you see Numbers 10, 1 to 10, and then you'll see 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 11. Beautiful correlation in the scriptures. So a lie is used by Satan to throw someone down by exalting himself through the lie that they succumb to, by lifting himself up above God and their experience. It's a lie. See it in Isaiah 14, 9 to 17. That's what he is. He's a liar. He had his five eye wills. He wanted to lift himself up above the stars of God. He wanted to make himself equal even above God. That's what he does, tries to do in our experience. To rob God of who he is in us. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19, bring it out. 
No wonder in James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to those that are humbled. And in that humility in 4, 7, we submit to him. Then we go to him with dirty hands and he washes them. And double minds, mixing thoughts, doubts with love, fear with love, fear one minute, love the next. It's evil thoughts, then a good, the next. You see, this is all. See, this all has to do with properly understanding who we are in Christ, the light in us in the midst of this world system, in prophecy. Because prophecy has to do with judgment of the earth. It's not judging us. He's training us, teaching us through chastisement and through the word. And so very quickly here, as we finish up what the lie is, so we can get back to comfort and consolation, he lifts himself up above God by that lie in our experience. He lies, because you know why? You know what he wants us to do? He wants us, if you can call it rest, to rest in his lie and not rest in God's love. To lay, and what does it mean to rest in his lies? To quit. Settle down in the world. Well, you know, this is the way it is. Oh, and I'll even use the word to do it. And I'll even go back to use others that, did, that God did use in my life back. But then I'll go back and say it's okay for what I'm doing. To lie at it. That's what it means. It means to lie at. Listen, to tease. Oh, how the enemy likes to tease us. He can't play with us positionally, but boy, like he does with the world. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. That's First John 5, 19, you know. He plays with them like a toy. Oh, how he likes to do that with our minds and our emotions. To rob us. Because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In John 10, 10a. To tease. To lie at the heart. To be, to be fixed as an object of affection or anxious desire. Do you have a desire for something? you anxious about it. Is it consuming your thoughts? It's a lie. Because to think that a desire can come from God and we can do something to bring it about is a lie. He has to bring us to the place of self-helplessness and self-hopelessness, just like he had to do with with, uh, Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, the 18th chapter. But look at the the first six verses of Genesis 21. To lie in the way. In other words, the enemy wants to lie in our way and to be an obstacle and an impediment for experiencing deep, intimate fellowship with Christ and comfort. Well, what happens? What does God do through the Word? What does He do through the comfort of His Word? He wants to remove the objections that lie in the way of an amicable, gracious and truthful adjustment in our experience. The enemy lies in wait he didn't take a second off, ever. And he has an innumerable, he's not everywhere present, but he has an innumerable evil army and hosts that come against us, by the way. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And 1 John 5, verse 4. So he lies in wait, and he lies in wait in concealment. And he lies in wait to ambush us. Where are all these thoughts coming from, God? Oh, my God, what is going on? 
He lies in wait to ambush, to watch for an opportunity to attack or to seize us with his lie, his fear. His lie, pseudos, his lie. It's a falsehood, it's a lie. It is conscious, notice that, it's conscious and intentional falsehood. Whatever is not what it seems to be, it's of perverse, impious, deceitful, lying projections and precepts. Now, here's what God does with us and what he wants to do with us this morning. In our own personal life, while we're, in the, we're, we're on the earth, in the midst of the judgment of this earth in terms of prophecy getting it ready, but we're not of that, we're of Christ. And this is the light that he wants to dawn, the light that lights us up on our way till finally we're with him face to face. And he's that light, that path in Proverbs 4 and verse 18. But this is what he told me. I'm just going to tell you, I wrote it down in my little notebook. And this is what he told me. And this is what he was doing with me personally this morning. He comforts us with the grace and truth of his love to bring us to a place that we love his grace and truth. It becomes our all. He is the God of all comfort. We read that. He is the God of all comfort. That's why all things are for our sake in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. That's why all things are of God in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18. And that's why all things work together for God's divine good. To them that love God, that's obedience, trust. To them that love God, that's the only place in that whole epistle we've been told many times where uh, that's the only place where that works for us in our experience. All things do work together for the good because God's good is invested in us. All of it. The waiting, the patience, everything we go through is for God's glory and our blessing to make us comfortable, not in the world, but to make us comforters for each other, to see us through. To keep saying to the other, come on, let's keep going. Come on, walk with me in the light. That's why I deeply desire fellowship. Come on, don't settle down. And you be a joint that supplies me, and I'll be a joint that supplies to you. And we'll speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4 and verse 15. And we'll be a joint that supplies in Ephesians 4 and verse 16. And we won't hide away from God and his perfect will. He's the God of all comfort. He's the God of grace and mercy in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Mercy, yes. Mercy, yes. But also, he's the God of all comfort. He provides whatever comfort it is that we need because it's based upon himself being propitiated and comforted by his son and giving him as a substitute. Positionally, yes. But a substitute right now in our experience, in terms of grace and truth right now, against the lie. He's the God of all comfort. He provides whatever, and what he provides is based upon what he's provided for himself first, and then for us, and can it fail? 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Whatever comfort is needed. This is where we get this Greek word, paraklesios, and it's a calling, calling, 
Remember Jeremiah 33, 3? Call unto me, and I will answer you. Call unto me without doubt, without fear. Trust me. Call unto me, and I will answer you, and I'll show you great and mighty things, which otherwise you could not know. It's a calling. Prayer, Acts 6, 4. Prayer, Luke 18, 1. It's an answer to one's aid or encouragement and comfort. He is God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. He is the, the paraclesis. That's who he is. To come alongside and help. That's, a, that's Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. He's interceding for us in Romans 8, 34. The Holy Spirit is comforting us and interceding us for us in Romans 8 and verse 26. Jesus Christ himself in Hebrews 7, 25 and in Hebrews 9 and verse 24 is ever living, ever living to intercede for us with unbelievable comfort. He's with us. We never suffer without him. Wrong suffering we do, right? Never without him. But he still never leaves us nor forsakes us. Sometimes he has to allow the own backsliding to bring us back to a place so that we can be comforted by his grace and truth. Well, again here, this is what it is. He comes alongside. You know, the psalmist said this in Psalm 119. Let me read it. In 119, I've quoted this one so many times over the decades in my own growth. That's Psalm 119. One of these times we'll get into it and, and, and see the isagogics of it and how incredible it is. But Psalm 119, 86 says, All my commandments. This is not the old... This is not the uh, Ten Commandments, the Ten Hebrew Words in Exodus 23 to 17. He's commanding us to do something which we can't do. No, the commandment was only given to teach people, the Jews, and to teach us in the flesh we can't do anything without them in John 15, 1 to 5. That's brought out in Romans 7, 12 to 15. But it's teaching. All your commandments are what? Are faithfulness. You command us to trust you and obey so we experience your faithfulness. Because if you don't, they, they will persecute you wrongfully. And then he says, help me. Oh, help me. How many times I cried that prayer out? Oh, oh, God, help me. And God answers it every time with me too. Yes, Ed, I will. I will humble you. Because until I do, you won't allow me to humble my whole plan is designed to humble you. My whole plan is designed to humble you. And everything that you think is against you is for you. Now, here we have, and that's that word we have, where it's, he's our parakletos. And that's First John 2, 1. My little children, see that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have this parakletos, the advocate. We have him. Why? Who, who will comfort us and teach us even the sin that we function in is not who we are in our proper image. He'll teach us that. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, My little children, see that you sin not, but if any man sin, we have an advocate. This Paracletos. We have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one in us, the source of all our righteousness. In 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 30. And he's the propitiation for our sins. And that's why we can even confess a proper confession that we're not that in 1 John 1, 9. But we need to. With godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7, 10. 
And he's the propitiation of 1 John 2, 2 for our sins. But also as the propitiation for the world to receive as a substitute so that their sins can be dealt with too. Again, this is brought out in Leviticus, the first chapter, and brought out clearly with the two, with the two lots in Leviticus, the 16th chapter. But here he is that. He's the God of all comfort. And that's, that's the Holy Spirit. He's the paraclete. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of this evil world system, and he comforts us. He comforts us. He takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us in John 16, 13, and 14. He is the God of, of our consolation. You'll see that word there very quickly. We see that word again. And I love that word. And and so here it is. He is our consolation. And first, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether you be afflicted, it's for your consolation. It's not against you. He's not holding back what you need. He's only holding it back so you get your desires right and mine right. In Proverbs thirteen twelve, that you're equal to what his desire would be for you. In Psalm 37 and verse 4. And then you can rest patiently. And then in 37, 5 of Psalms, you roll all your care, all your anxious thoughts on him. Because he really does in 1 Peter 5, 7 care for you. So he is that. He's the consolation there. Two, consolation. Here's the word consolation as we close. In these last four minutes. Consolation here is that Greek word paraklesis. From the whole, where we get the word that even the Holy Spirit is. He's the paraclete. It's the same word that God the Holy Spirit had John record in John 14, 16. He's going to give you another comforter. Jesus said, I'm going to go in heaven and I'm going to comfort you through intercession. But while you're on this earth, I'm going to give you a comforter. And he will be able to comfort you and understand your groanings even more than you do in Romans 8, verse 26. And he will take the things of Christ show them unto you. That's the Holy Spirit, the Comforter who abides in us. And I'm going to have to skip over some of these things, but bring them out in detail in the coming days. He abides in us. That is so much truth we don't have time to get into this morning. And he teaches us that's why he's the only theologian and scholar. Let's make that crystal clear. He teaches us. He guides us into truth. He gives us peace. He gives us power. He does. See, it's grace giving us to the humble. He gives us all this in our experience. He gives us all of this so that we join ourselves through a submitted will to God in his work in and through us through suffering and comfort that goes to others. That's Philippians 2.12 and 13. First, he wants us to comfort us to others. Others who? First, it's your local assembly, those that are around you. First, and then out into the world, the world of lost humanity. And even the world of Christians that aren't taught that are lost. And oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. We are to experience this inner joy from intimate communion, fellowship, 
individually and with others in seeing God's presence in everything. And if God is present, is there not only comfort in his presence? Well, Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I will always set the Lord before my face because he's at my right hand. I'll never be moved, not by a lie. And there's joy in the presence of God. In Psalm 16, 11, there's joy, there's tremendous comfort, tremendous love, tremendous love and comfort. And Father, thank you for this truth this morning. And we just pray, I just pray for even more of this truth to be brought out in the coming day, in the coming messages this morning. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.